if you have got a good succession plan and you've got great people, you will get at least two times more for that business. I say to Ian, what is it you need to leave like a year before, or you need, need to come and meet you or someone like you a year before? And he said, no, no, no. I think it takes three years of planning before you exit. Now, the more they're known regionally, locally, or nationally, uh, the company buying, their lawyer, acting for them or accountant, will just sort of say, they're a reputable accounts firm, um, it'll all be in order. As they say, sales is vanity, Profit is sanity. And I see so many businesses that have massive sales and are making no money. So what I want to talk about this afternoon, uh, I'm going to ask Paul Selman to come and join me in a little while as well. But before that, I want to go through some of the structural things that I learned. Now, by luck more than uh, planning, the first business I ever bought um, was a business called HIM, which I sold to a big media company called WRBM, William Reed Business Media. And the lawyer that we couldn't use, the lawyer that the company had been using, because I worked there for a year or two and so did my business partner, Tom. Uh, and because the company had a lawyer, they were acting for um, the, the guy who was selling it to us. So I, we had to find another lawyer. By luck, more than planning, we met this guy called Ian Brent. Um, and he is with Fladgate. And if ever you are interested in, it will always give you a free session uh, to talk about. If, if you rang him up and said, look, I want to build my business towards exit, um, he'll give you a free session to start with. And you might use him. But if not, you'll start to get a feel for the type of person you might need in order to sell a business. But one of the things that he said to Tom and I as we bought this business was, you've got a really good buy here. You know, you bought this at 3.8 times, 3.9 times EBITDA, which is the industry average or the, the, the average across all businesses in the UK. And he said, for God's sake, don't sell it for the same multiple. He said, because everyone in business thinks that getting more value at exit is about growing the sales or growing the profit. And don't get me wrong, that's a big part of it. But actually, if that gets you on average in the UK 3.9 times, he taught us how to make on the same profit 10 to 20 times. Um, so I don't know if any of you have seen my Success as a System podcast, but one of them is with Ian Brent, and we go through uh, some of those things uh, that enable that. And people often, when I teach it, because it is something I've done with many businesses, say, yeah, but, you know, how, how can it be the same business but be worth two and a half, three, four, five times as much as it was with the same profit? And that's what I want to take you through, some of those elements. So firstly, look at where your profit is today. Um, times it by four. If you tried to sell today, that's probably what your business is worth. You are then going to have to invest 30, 40, 50 grand on accountants and lawyers as a minimum to sell that business. You are then going to pay uh, 10% at least entrepreneurs, relief entrepreneurs tax on it uh, for getting the business. So don't just think I'm going to get four times. I'll take that. Think about what's going to be taken off of it. Also, as Mark said, during that sale process and uh, on the podcast, you'll hear Ian say, on average, it takes a year to sell a business. A year. And people think, bloody hell, you know, surely if I've got someone who, who, who we've agreed a price, 
it'll be less than a year. The business that my business partner in HIM, Tom Fender and I bought, we agreed to buy it. We agreed the price. It then took a year to buy it because once lawyers get involved, they start looking at the contracts and there'll be points in it like if you haven't done this or if this happens later, that they have a comeback on your money uh, and, and so on. Or the sales suddenly take a bit of a dip and they'll say, well, we're paying less now because you're now on target for so-and-so. And you think, well, we've lost a bit because... I haven't been out of focus on the selling or I haven't been able to focus on the people. So it's only gone down a bit because you guys have been keeping me busy. Um, so what I want to go through are those things that will change your multiple. So if you are taking notes, what, what I'd say is that four times EBITDA net profit is what you'll get for a business. Okay. And the numbers I'm going to give you aren't exact by any means, but it won't be a bad rough guide. If you have got a good succession plan, and you've got great people, you will get at least two times more for that business. So suddenly we've gone from four to six as a multiple. So what is a succession plan? The biggest risk for anyone buying a business is that it's all about you or you. You're the driver of the business. You drive the people. They love you. Maybe even some of them are related to you. Uh, they know your style of working. They come to work because it's a small business. All of these things. And the biggest risk for someone buying is that the minute you go, that business go, goes too. It falls apart in effect. So they're going to immediately put a couple of things in play. One is that you will not employ any of the people that have worked for you and some of them say, not just now at completion, they'll say within three years before as well, because they know that some businesses will sack people before because they want them out of this contractual element for the next business. So you could have the people who you think are the best people to build any business with because they're mates, you built it together. You will almost definitely not be able to employ them going forward. So if you do want to go into another business, you're back to finding a new team or you're back on your own again. That's something to consider. But if a year or so before you can start saying, I need to make the business less dependent on me, one, so that when they come to agree the price or agree the purchase, like, so for instance, we were um, doing dinners and events and everything everywhere, Tom and I, and it, some people referred to our business, which was a, an international research business looking at shopper behavior and so on. And so, some people would, instead of calling it HIM, they'd call it the Tom and Mike show. So very early on, uh, Ian said to us, you've got to stop this. It's got to not be about you two because you won't be able to sell it if they can prove any dependency on you because it, it's too much risk. So for a year before, we deliberately didn't sell a single product. Okay. And when they say, oh, it's, I've heard it's Tom and Mike show, we could say, well, I don't know how you say that. I haven't managed a single client. I haven't um, chaired an event uh, and I haven't sold a single product. And it was a real no-brainer. I could evidence that. But that meant we had to change our behavior at least a year before to show it wasn't dependent on us. But it meant we'd get at least two times more, two times profit more for the value. So succession plan is everything, which then changes your structure. So in that podcast, I say to Ian, what is it you need to leave like a year before or you need, need to come and meet you or someone like you a year before? And he said, no, no, no. I think it takes three years of planning before you exit. Now, if you're sitting in a room thinking, fuck that, I wanted to get out in six months or three months or two months, you are almost definitely going to take a much reduced price if you do that. And you will probably struggle to find someone. But 
if so even if you're not sure my as i said earlier why don't you work towards an exit in three years and everything's going so great if everything's going so great and you're loving it don't sell at that point but the the things i'm going to go through to you with you that affect the multiple that you can achieve also massively grow the business okay so one is that succession plan You've then got to say, if I'm going to have people that replace me in sales, in marketing, in whatever it is, client management, uh, have I got the people to do that? Can I train my people to do it? Or do I need new or different people if they're stepping up into my shoes? And so you've then got to think, but Christ, that, you know, that I've got to pay maybe 80, 100 grand, 150 grand to get that person. I'll make no money if I do that, which is a really good point. But they're going to take your time as a salary anyway. So let's say you're making a quarter of a million and they see that you've only taken 20, 30 grand. They'll say, we need to put an MD in. So we're going to discount your profit by a reasonable management wage anyway. And they're going to use that as a negotiator. So, but if you get a great MD, now what Tom and I did do that grew the business, was, which was one of the things that Mark alluded to, again, under the guidance of Ian is, we did a load of profile brand building stuff. So we were doing dinners. You might be a client. I'm not going to manage you. I'm not going to sell to you. But I'll take you to the cricket. Or I'll take you out for a really nice lunch. We'll get drunk together. I'm not saying you have to get drunk. But building a relationship connects people uh, and they see you as more than just that service, that product, uh, and so on. So we built the right relationships in, a, in, in the sector, which then grew our business. If we had relationships with the people at the senior level, when someone junior decided that they might look at another research company or another consultancy, they thought, oh, yeah, but these guys, they get on well with, with John, who's, who's our CEO, and You'll be pissed if you suggest getting rid of them. And so it protected us. Now, is that manipulation or is that savvy business? Knowing that the decisions are made here, even if my relationship primarily day-to-day sits here. And yet I speak to some people on the mentoring, uh, and let's say they're working for ABC Homes. And I say, have you ever met the CEO? Oh, no, no, we work with the contracts director. I say, well, find out where the CEO goes, you know, is is he a football fan? Invite him for some football. Is is she a, a big foodie? I'm not stereotyping here. I'm not trying to. I can't do it. But find out what it is that people love, and there's always a way you can connect with them uh, and start to build those senior level relationships. So succession plan, that's one of the things you'll get an extra two multiple. Next thing is good financial controls. Now, the first thing, and that'll get you another two, by the way. So suddenly we might be at seven, we might be at eight times uh, our profit. Why? Because the biggest fear is that you've got some mate who's a dodgy accountant who's cooked the books uh, and and there's something been manipulated. Um, and it, it might just be that you've got a bad accountant who was great when you were Sunday league and tiny, but now you've got more mid-leagues uh, and they're only doing the accounts. They're not advising you. They, they're, they're not telling you some of the systems that you need in place. So, you know, towards an exit, you'll probably need to upgrade your accountant as well. Or if you don't, during the exit process, I would suggest not using your existing accountant and finding out, uh, finding a much better, more senior accountant to act on the sale for you. Okay. Uh, now, the more they're known regionally, locally, or nationally, uh, the company buying, their lawyer acting for them or accountant will just sort of say, they're a reputable accounts firm. Um, it'll all be in order. 
I mean, there is this kind of assumption that if they're using Waller and Waller, who have been there 150 years and are at the top quartile or at least top half of charging, that they won't do anything dodgy. They won't enable them to hide any money. So immediately your deal, your due diligence goes up a notch in terms of credibility or expected credibility because they're a reputable accountancy firm. Um, and then they're going to look at, have you got accounts that are on it all the time? You know, by project, by week, by month, uh, net income per person, whatever the key metrics for your particular skill set or business type is, um, knowing those numbers. Now, let me tell you, I never focused on sales, actually, as a business. I focused on profit because, as they say, sales is vanity, profit is sanity. And I see so many businesses that have massive sales and are making no money. And why, why do people let themselves do that? Because often the first question your mates will say or ask about is, oh, look, this is Fred, his business turns over 10 million quid and they puff their chest out and, and they feel all good about it. But what they're not saying is, yeah, but he lost 50 grand last year because you ain't going to tell them. And they're, they're focusing on the ego, if you like, rather than the actual bottom line. Now, if you went to anyone in my business at least three years before we exited it, uh, I didn't even know where the sales were on any particular day or week because I weren't bothered about it. I weren't interested in it. But I could tell you within a thousand pounds, even when we were doing multi-millions on any day where our profit was, a combination of actual achieved and projected from business that we were doing. Any day, on any week, anyone in my team from a, a PA to a junior analyst up would know where the profit was. Why? Because we had the incentive scheme that got them to drive sales. Um, and so they dr drive sales towards profit, but they would, they would work on that. Now, if you've got a salesperson and you say, uh, if you need to, you can discount a price by up to 10%, what's the, what are they likely to do in the first sale they go into? They discount it because it's not their money. They want the sale and they can probably close it in their mind. They'll probably close it quicker. So again, if you do commissions or incentives based on the, the profit, not the sale, they'll, they'll go for more profit because you need the profit. Because you don't hear, other than in some sort of tech or brand fashion businesses, you don't hear about the sale price being a multiple of the revenue. You mostly hear about it being a multiple of the profit. So that's what you need them to drive. But by focusing on profit, we had things like we never brought these systems in. If you've got the right people and you incentivize them towards a profit figure, um, what they will do is my PA would say things like, who the hell left the heating on over the weekend? That heating's been going all week. That's probably 100 quid straight off of our bottom line. In order to make 100 quid, we need to sell 1,100 pounds worth of consultancy. So we've just wiped out 1,100 pounds of new business because you left the heating on over the weekend. Or someone else would say, who the hell booked this train ticket on the day of travel? It's at least twice as much if you don't do it more than 24 hours before. You know, and they'd start picking up on these little things that made a huge difference because it is straight onto bottom line or straight off of bottom line. So just to show of hands, who's got an incentive scheme that, that pays your teams if you hit a profit or sales target? One, two. So, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that Mark said was about share of business. Now, I tend to be a bit more protective of shares, but share of profit 
I was always happy to give away. So we would give away 20% of profit every year. And we had a really simple uh, incentive scheme, and I've used it in tens of businesses since and recommended it to probably hundreds. And it is really simple. It is, we made, let's say, 100 grand this year. We're going to try and make 200 grand next year. And if we hit 200 grand, basically you are going to share 20% of that profit, 40 grand. Okay. Now, how do I then work out what's fair? So the schemes that I normally used to run, because if I can drive profit, I'm going to get a multiple of that profit. It doesn't determine what's then given away because that, that, that's taken out after the accounts, if you like, in the, in the following year. Or you can treat it as, well, it's just an incentive scheme. It's not part of the business. You don't have to run it if you're buying it. You can take that incentive scheme out. It's my incentive scheme. So it's value, but it won't affect the value that you exit at. So what I'd say is people got a point for every month they'd worked in the business. Now, that's important because that recognized loyalty and rewarded loyalty. And the longer someone works for you, unless they're rubbish, uh, there's less training they need because they've grown with the business. They've grown with the systems. They've evolved with the systems. If they haven't, you need to think about whether they need to be there. And the second thing is you get a point for every thousand pounds that you earn. Now, by doing that, that, that then recognize seniority in the business. So the point for every month recognizes loyalty. The point for every thousand recognizes seniority because whether we like it or not, someone who's your MD or your sales director is probably of more value to you than the cleaner or a junior analyst. It's not not being harsh on them. If they grow to that position, there's nothing stopping them. They'll get more as they grow. But I would then get some of the team who would say, but that's not fair. He's a lazy so-and-so. He shouldn't get any bonus. And I'd say, so why are we still employing him? Oh, well, listen, if you think it's affecting your, your, your bonus, do you, want to, do you want to exist without him? Now, very quickly, within the first year, we never sacked anyone after that. The team pushed them out because they knew. And they would come to me if someone left and say, Mike, so-and-so, we've been talking, uh, and we think we can, we can run without that person. Now, equally, if they thought they needed someone that would grow the business, they'd come and say, we need an extra person, Mike, and they could do this, this, and this, and we think the return will be higher. That kind of incentive scheme grew us from making about 300 grand to making 1.8 million in about four years. And it was the biggest single thing because it recognizes loyalty, it recognizes seniority, and it focuses them on people in the team who are taking the piss or when somebody leaves the electric on, or little cost, and that, you know, look after the pennies, the pounds will look after himself. And, and the purpose of this is all towards how do you optimize EBITDA if your exit value is going to be a multiple of EBITDA? Now, this is, uh, is it tax avoidant or tax evasion? Tax avoidance. If I was deciding to take, uh, say Mick was the supplier, and I said, Mick, do you want to go for lunch? And I took Mick for lunch. Like I said, expense it through the business. When I came to exit that business, I'd rather take Mick for lunch personally. Why? Because if that lunch, that lunch cost 100 quid, that 100 quid cost me 1,100 quid of sales, and that 100 quid came straight off the bottom line. Or more importantly, if I got 15 times EBITDA at exit, I got 1,500 quid by not spending that as a business expense by saying, he's a mate now, I've known him for ages anyway, I'm going to take him out for lunch. We get on well, or I'm going to take him to the cricket still built the relationship. People do business with people they like, know, and trust. 
Okay, so there's ways in the last year that you'll change that. So good financial controls, understanding profit, understanding EBITDA. And I deliberately asked Mark, that what, what, how does he feel about finance? I love finance. Then he went on to say, I didn't, but I learned to love it. And, and I say as well, because it has such an impact on your business, profitability on an ongoing uh, basis, but also value when you exit, is the person who I often hated most in any business that I've run, and I've run many, um, was the FD. Why? Because they always told me what I couldn't do. They always told me we didn't have enough money. So I might, they drive me bloody insane. But the person who is my most important person in any business is the FD. Why? Because the numbers never lie. The numbers never lie. If you can't evidence something with numbers, you ain't going to get a multiple of it. You can't get a multiple based on maybes and potential. And, it, and sometimes when you sell a business, you can say, we'll take the average of the last three years, which is what they do. One of the reasons Ian says go back a uh, couple of years. They'll either take it at a point in time or they'll say it's an average of the last three years and the future um, defined certain funnel, let's say. So you can get a bit of value for business that's in the pipeline that, or contracted, if you like. Which brings me then on to the third uh, multiple that can add another one or two is legals. And it's interesting because literally we met 10 minutes before. It's the first time I've ever met him. Uh, and uh, yet there was a lot of connection in, in what he said around the importance of finance, the importance of legal and so on. But he said, never, ever negotiate on your accountants or, legal, or lawyers. Why? Now, my lawyer is about £900 an hour. I don't want to spend any time with him. I don't have to. But, and people say, oh, well, my, my guy, where I am, he's bloody great. And he's only 200 pounds. Often the 200 pound person can cost you more than the 900 pound person on a problem. Anyone know why that is? I hope you're enjoying Success is a System. Every Tuesday, we launch it on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Drop us a note and tell us who you would like to see or hear on Success is a System or what subject you'd like us to cover to help you and your business. Success is a System, like, subscribe, and make sure you get it every Tuesday for great lessons and systems that have made people wealthy, healthy, and successful. Takes some longer. It's partly that, but... Also, when you go to a top 50 firm or a top local firm or, or something, they've got teams of people. So what happens is, let's say I give Ian a sale process or a project or an issue, he will look at it at the beginning, he will immediately delegate it down. Now, some of that will be delegated down to somebody on 30 quid an hour, someone who charges 50 quid an hour, 100 pound an hour, 200 pound an hour. But So even though he's 900 pound an hour, if I'm doing 20 hours, a lot of that can be done by a junior member of staff or an intern or a locum that's being charged out so much cheaper. Whereas if you're going to Fred or Mary, the, uh, your local lawyer, there's every chance they're going to do everything. And because they're going to do everything, they're going to charge you their £200 for everything. So it's sometimes a false economy to just look at the hourly rate and assume that, that, that that's four times as much. It is, or four and a half times as much as an hourly rate. But the right lawyers will delegate it right down. Now, what you can also negotiate with lawyers and law firms and accountants as well is a fixed price annual um, price. And I would go for that because otherwise it's amazing how many hours they find if it's so much per hour. So it's either a fixed sale price or a fixed contract price or a fixed project price. Negotiate that, but don't negotiate on their hourly fees and so on. Because if they're not making good money, they're the ones who are keeping you out of prison. They're the ones who are 
making sure that you don't get an HMRC tax investigation. Uh, they're the ones who are going to help you optimize your exit. So if you've penny pinched on the way in, chances are they're going to delegate it down because they're still going to aim to make as much money. You know, in a law firm, people are promoted to partner based on how much profit they bring into the law firm, their charges, their expenses, their time committed, and the proportion of their time that can be charged back. So it's one area I would say, if you think you've got a really good deal, I would look again. I mean, I've always, always felt uncomfortable how much I've spent spent on lawyers and accountants. And I think that's a healthy discomfort to have. But it's always given me confidence. And they've made me not even lots of money. They've made me millions by using the right people. Really, I mean, what Ian taught us has enabled us to buy businesses at four times EBITDA, restructure or reshuffle them and sell them at 10 without really pro- focusing on the profit. Now, if along the way we can double the profit as well, we're then getting much, much more, more like 20 times what it was when we got it. And that is, it becomes, it goes from being a good amount of money to a life-changing amount of money. So legal is another um, area of it. Um, Next thing is, are you dependent on one product or one service? Or can you spread that? So Mark talked about the fact that the guy said to him when he was going into business, don't have all of this, focus in. Equally, when you come towards an exit process, you might focus out a little bit because you can get a benefit for um, business from potential, not not from maybes. But for instance, what we did is we were always UK based. And in the two years prior to exit, we opened a franchise business in Australia, a franchise business in New Zealand and a franchise business in America. It never turned over or made us profit more than a hundred grand. But what it did show to a potential purchaser is we have our business, our product, our services have the potential to scale into other markets, other other countries. And actually the company that bought us, I noticed that they would there'd been four generations in the UK. They just before they approached us, they'd bought a business from Montpellier, France, a digital marketing business. They'd bought a business in New York. So clearly they were going global. So the fact that even though we'd only scratched the surface, we had properly produced a prototype, if you like, a proven prototype that, that could then help them know they could scale it globally. So that might not give me a lot of profit to add to my EBITDA, but it, it could drive another two times multiple of the whole business. So because I've got more potential to go to a wider cap, cap, captive audience, it increases my overall multiple. So let's just say, you know, you don't want to go around the world, but you're currently working in Yorkshire. In the year before, you might open into another couple of counties just to show that your reach, your brand, your, your potential is bigger than it is. Um, you've got to understand the cost, the distraction and all of this of it potentially, but understand it can add another multiple to it. Okay. One of the next things that can affect multiple is the degree to which you are relevant in today's marketplace. So, you know, if you're still doing, I don't know, TV advertising, radio advertising, newspaper advertising, you've got no social media presence, no digital presence. Someone might look at that business and think, fantastic, once we get in there and build this, we're going to like double it just because they got no brand on the internet yet. But they won't pay you because you haven't done it. They'll use it as a reason to keep your 
value down because you haven't done it. And it's crazy. To me, I look at it, I think, great, they haven't done it. I'll go in, but I'm not going to give them any more multiple. If they have got a good social media presence, it can add a multiple. Okay? And people say, yeah, but Mike, these bloody techies, they charge you a fortune. Or these social media companies, they charge you a fortune. There's always a, a smart way to work smart rather than hard or costly. So one of the ways that I often did it um, is when, when I was building different businesses, I'd go to the local college. Um, I knew a lot of them anyway because I'd been given an honorary doctorate. So I was working with the university and, and Peterborough Regional College, uh, University Centre Peterborough. And I went to them and I said, I want to do like um, a competition. And I had a journalist from the journalism uh, course there and from the digital marketing course. And I'll make a one-off, I want to do a competition. So I'll give them a subject, I'll give them a few quotes, and I want them to write an article for me, which is giving me content, okay? And then I say to the digital guys, I want to see how many uh, follows, likes, subscribes you can get from this your post. So you're each going to create a couple of posts, and we're going to measure that over a period of time. Now, let's say we set quite a tight target. Often it was like a week later because they've got to get used to deadlines anyway when they're doing their uni degree for when they go to a job. Now, it was amazing because it was really mutual. And that's always a good word in business. I gained, the student gained, the university gained because the, the, that lecturer was able to say, right, we've got a competition from local business. Um, it'll give you some real life experience You'll be able to put on your CV some published content because you're going to create content that Mike and his business are going to put out. But also it gave me the opportunity to see someone that might become tomorrow's employer, employee. So I would then say, I don't want to employ them. I don't want to talk about paying them or um, uh, help sickness pay and all this lot. So all I'll do is I'll make a £5,000 donation to the university, which is equivalent to £100 a week. Uh, and I want 10 hours of work for that, £10 an hour. This was a couple of years ago, but then it was a lot for a student. Um, but the university released those funds. Um, I didn't have to pay them. I didn't have to employ them. They would just say to me, Mike, is Mary or Fred giving you the work that, that you're expecting? Yep, they released them another 100 quid or another it's monthly, 430 quid, I think it was, something like that. Um, so it was fully deductible for me because it was a charitable donation. Most educational establishments are. I got someone in their third year of that degree, which is where they've pretty much learned most of the content. They're then starting to get into exam season and so on. They're, they want to get some experience because one of the reasons that graduates can't get jobs is because they've had no experience. Um, but also by doing that, I also got the lecturer, the senior lecturer, oversee everything that was done because he or she isn't going to want one of their students to put bad output out. So you're getting the student doing it, the lecturer checking it, and then it's real content that's going out for me. So I was able to build uh, brand presence and fallership for businesses without paying this. I mean, some companies want two, three thousand pounds a month. And then you look and think, I don't think that's clever. Or I mean, more recently, um, if you look at ChatGBT, who's tried it, by the way? If, if you haven't, have a look at chat, put into Google ChatGPT. And there's lots of them, but look at open.ai. Um, give it any question. Put something like, um, write 10 posts that could go right viral on heating and, on heating and plumbing uh, in Yorkshire. Now, it accesses years of the whole internet. 
and it, it is scary. It'll do it in like two or three seconds. Or write me the copy for, for a, a press release about um, why people should work with us as a plumbing and heating business, let's say. And it writes it in seconds. I mean, so you don't need to pay for some of this. It is, it'll be very addictive, so don't let it distract you too much from your business. But it is worth doing. And if you, even if you have to write a letter of complaint or, like you said, about being sued, if you, if you want to sue someone else or that, they can write some of the content. It is incredible. But, so, but you need a social presence. You need a digital presence. You need to be down with the kids and up to date with the way that people are connecting. Okay? Um, so not having that will affect your multiple. Having it will grow your multiple. Um, I'll just look at a couple of other things that we'll look at. Um, yeah, during the due diligence, they're going to check everything in your business. Have you got great HR files? digitally or paper? Have you got contracts for all the work you're doing? A lot of people think, I don't need a contract if they don't do it. If they don't pay me, I won't do it um, and stuff. But when you get into a sale process, you want contracts for everything um, because they won't believe your word that you've got this work coming up or an email. They'll want a contract because they won't count it in future profit or, or if, if it's not contracted, locked in uh, and so on. Have you got good the finances? So the due diligence has got to be whiter than white. So what you don't want is someone to start down the road with you and leave because you've got poor paperwork. So you almost want your lawyer, the commercial lawyer that's working with you, to say, we're going to create a Dropbox uh, with all that information in. So again, that's something that we now do as a business, say on our properties. From the day we buy it, we put all the legals, all the financials, uh, everything, all the plans, the architect's plans and everything, into a Dropbox. That becomes a live Dropbox. You can all join Dropbox for a couple of quid a month or free if you haven't got much in, if you're not doing a lot of it. And as you get a new contract, put it in the Dropbox. As your accounts are done, put it in the Dropbox. As you get a lease on a vehicle, put it in the Dropbox. As you buy a property, put it in the Dropbox. And then when you do come to sell, it's all there. It's not like you've got to spend months pulling it all together. Where did we put that? Have we got that? Oh, we haven't got a contract. Go to them now and you try and get a retrospective contract out of a client. It's like virtually impossible. You can keep that as a live document that will not, it'll do two things. One, the commercial lawyer will say, fantastic, this guy's girl's on the ball. Um, the accountant will think it was all in there. That's fantastic. But more importantly, when the buyer's lawyer sends you a big list of elements that they want for that DD, you can say, well, i tell you what, it's all in our Dropbox. I'll give you access. And boom, they're in. Because what a lot of people who have sold a business will tell you is, well, not only is it horrible because it will take up loads of hours and you'll either end up doing four or five hours a day after your job or it will come out of the work, uh, the business, and it will affect the business. So um, that's some, some of those things. The other thing is consider, even if you've been planning for three years, the multiple will be affected a lot by whether uh, it's the right time in the market or in your market. And again, a commercial lawyer, or you can even look on Dalton's Weekly uh, and where on business sale websites, if you realize that values have gone down at the moment, trade another year. Wait until you're, you're on the up or it's a good time to sell. Same with property. You know, if your home dropped by 20% and it was just on a, on a, a curve, you'd probably wait until it went back 
to, to a good place to sell it. There's a time to sell by sector, by region, by business. So um, keep an eye on that. Equally, if you've built a relationship with a commercial lawyer a couple of years out, what they can do is if they notice you've got a three-year plan, but they might say um, 18 months in, they might come to you and say, there seems to be a real hunger for for uh, scaffolding businesses at the minute. We've got a chain that are trying to buy up as many as they can. Uh, now's the time. So, oh yeah, but I thought you said three years. Listen, at the moment, you'll get an extra two multiple because there's an appetite, there's a customer, uh, there's an opportunity to sell. So where the market is, is, is really important. And the next thing is growth potential. The business that, that I bought for 1.4 million that was doing 370 or whatever profit, um, a year and a half before, he'd been offered 10 million pounds for it. And it was a great business. He was a guru. Um, and he told me, oh, I bloody got offered 10 million quid the other year. Why didn't you take it? Oh, well, you know, there's, you, I, I weren't ready. It weren't the right time or, or whatever. Uh, and it was because he was growing like this within the way he was growing it, okay? And by the time we bought it, 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 the upside didn't look as good. So we bought at a good time in the market. We then, we expanded into different sectors. We refined the systems. We did all of what I talked about that Ian said. We went, we started to look international. Uh, we did more networking uh, with the Chamber of Commerce, the Association of Convenience Stores, the uh, Federation of Wholesale Distributors, join loads of networks. And that's another really important thing that you can do to grow your business. Look at the opportunities for networking, business building, customer, uh, meeting customers in your area. Uh, and so sadly for him, he'd sold it when the upside of the way he'd structured it had gone. So if you think, I'll wait to the peak and sell it because then it's going to be most valuable, what are you giving someone else? You know, you almost need to sell in a growth market. And then they can see, bloody hell, they've only, they've only gone two-thirds up this mountain of, of growth that's there. We can get that, and we can then add our own bells and whistles and take it on another scale. So don't wait until you think you've optimized a business. Give them something to play for uh, with what they're going to do. So the timing is, is really important. Um, and then I touched on it briefly with Mark. What's the exit strategy that you're going for? And what I mean by exit strategy is why are you selling it? Are you selling it just because you've fallen out of love with it temporarily? Are you selling it because there's something prettier, nicer, sexier over here and, and you're tempted by that? Even though you might not know that, I mean, number of people jump in into property that have never done property, jump in into buying NFTs that have never, don't even know what an NFT is if you question them, that are, I'm going to buy Bitcoin or at the moment, I'm going to buy Ripple. It's going to go from 39p to 80 quid. It's like, you're fucking stupid. You know, it's like, what evidence have you got? Oh, this guy on, on, on TikTok, he said it's going to go there. Have you ever thought that he's in a loss with, with drip, Ripple and he might be trying to, what they call, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the right investment term, they, uh, where they deliberately bump it to get people to buy it because they can show a growth curve when really it's a false growth curve. It's just fully created. 
Now, listen, I could be wrong on this, but what I'm saying is, if it's not our speciality, why would we jump into it when we've got something we know we can do? We know we can make money at. We've got a skill for. We've got people who can do it. But we're going to out. We're going to sell ourselves short here rather than say, "I will do today what others will not, so I can live tomorrow as others cannot." So much as I'm hating this business right now, I'm going to put three years in. In that three years, I'm going to work with a commercial lawyer. I'm going to use them as a bit of a mentor, and I'm going to put the right structures in place. I'm going to put the right people in place. I'm going to put the right incentives in place, uh, and I'm going to go for gold. I will work my little socks off. Uh, for a couple of years to get an optimized exit. Then the exit strategy. So be clear on why you're selling it. Be clear that it's not just a temporary dislike or or being seduced into something that looks better, but maybe isn't. Then you've got to be clear on what will you do? So you've got a million in the bank, two million in the bank. Now I can look any of you in the eye and say, I don't think you can retire without any money worries without about six or seven million quid. Now, why? Because, you know, by the time you pay your mortgage off, buy a nice car, have a nice holiday, get some nice new clothes, you're going to wipe out a lot of that. And then you've got to make money on what you've got left. Now, if you've got six or seven million quid, if you'd put, say, two to cover everything that you want, cars and house, and well, if you want more, you need more. But let's say that did that. On five million quid, I can teach anyone in property, and not just me, lots of people, how to make half uh, half a million quid on five million or 10% basically on any money. You know, with a combination of shares, risk, low risk, uh, property, commercial, residential, um, and so on, with the right financial companies and consultancies, you should be able to make 10% on that. So if I've got five million, I can make half a million without ever touching that five million. If I can then build another business in parallel to it, that's ring fenced, that's protected, um, and we go again. Now, let me, it's really, I, I want to say this a couple of times because about 50 to 70% of entrepreneurs lose all the money they make from their first exit because they've learned to build a business, but they haven't learned to grow money. They haven't learned to keep money. They haven't learned investment. And I tell you, when you get 5 million quid, it will be published somewhere that you've sold your business. Out of the woodwork, all the vermin will come and you'll have people offering you investment opportunities that are too good to be true. And you'll be tempted. And the reason they're too good to be true is because they're probably not real. People say 10% guaranteed. But then if you read the detail, the 10% guaranteed will be subject to some things. It's not really guaranteed. It's guaranteed if the market continues as it is. Uh, and you'll find that there'll be all sorts of outs that will give them that. Now, I probably lost uh, one or two million after I sold my business. I learned really quickly. And to me, I, I mentioned it earlier, you can learn through experience, that's painful, that's hard work. Or you can learn through wisdom, which is learning through other people's experience. And, you know, Joe says, Mark says, it must be something Alan Sugar teaches, success leads clues. So don't go and make the same mistakes as other people. And certainly, I think a business that sells for less than at least a couple of million probably isn't going to give you what you want from life unless you've done the math. You know, my brother, he lives um, in India uh, and he can live really, really well on 25 grand a year. So he only needs to make 25 grand a year. But do you want to live in India? 
If the answer is yes, you don't need to earn six or seven million. Um, but if you want to live here in this country with our taxes, with the cost of living and the fact it could go up, and if you've got young kids and you decide you want to send them to a better school or whatever it is, it costs a lot of money. Uh, so you need to do that.